You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, we get a read on the IPO market. That says retailer Sheen files confidentially for a US listing, while Reddit, it tests the water for a 2024 public offering. More ahead. Plus, we'll talk the state of the consumer on this Travel Tuesday, and Amazon reports new records for Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales. And Tesla's production nightmare. Why the Cybertruck is continuing to be trouble for Tesla ahead of its all-important delivery event this week. We'll discuss that and so much more this hour. Let's go to companies that... Well, perhaps they're looking to get into the world of publicly traded highs and lows. Let's talk about Sheen. It's filed for an IPO, we understand. Reddit also, again, holding talks with potential investors as well. Let's get all of it on the strength, or like thereof, of an IPO market as we look towards 2024. Bloomberg's Katie Roof. I mean, a whole glut of news. I mean, not forgetting skims, of course, with Kim Kardashian and one of the helm of that particular business. But start on Sheen. What are we thinking the appetite would be like for a company that basically is rivaling H&M and Zara? That's right. So they just filed confidentially for a U.S. IPO. They're hoping to go sometime next year. We think they could be valued as much as $90 billion. Uh, they have low price points, which has been very popular with U.S. consumers uh, and, and global consumers. They were Chinese-founded, but they moved their headquarters to Singapore. So this technically wouldn't be a Chinese company listing in the U.S. Obviously, there's been a, little, a lot of uh, geopolitical tensions there. But uh, the Singapore makes it more amenable. Reddit's an interesting one as well, Katie. And it was funny, I spent the morning reading about Reddit's kind of more recent history. And you realize that they actually first started this IPO discussion January 2022, which the other way of looking at it was two years ago. What is the latest on a Reddit listing? Sure. So they wanted to go public during the last IPO boom, but they just missed it. And so they've been eagerly waiting for the IPO window to reopen. They weren't in the first crop of companies to go public this fall. As you know, we saw Instacart, Clavio, and all that. But sources tell us that they are getting ready. They are hoping that as soon as Q1 that they could go public. But obviously, as, as we've seen, they've had a lot of fits and starts. 
Okay, Bloomberg's Katie Roof with a lot of reporting overnight about what looks like a busy 1Q in 2024. Let's keep the conversation going with Equity Zen's head of market insights, Brianne Lynch. And I guess we start with Sheen because the valuation being discussed is mega. Um, it is, to all intents and purposes, a kind of discount clothing retailer um, side by side. What do you make about it coming to market? Yeah. This is one that we've heard is rumored to IPO for a while now, um, and it looks like it's finally making that move into the public markets. And it's an interesting one to watch. It's different than the cohort of companies that we saw went public this fall. Uh, and it's a company that's been growing really rapidly. They achieved $23 billion in revenue last year, had their most profitable half, the first half of this year. On top of that, they've grown their distribution centers in the U.S., Canada. Europe. They've opened more manufacturing centers in India and Brazil. Um, and they're really solidifying their U.S. footprint. Um, the U.S. is their largest market, um, you know, forging partnerships with Forever 21 and others to, you know, create that brick and mortar presence. That being said, there is a lot of hair around this one. Uh, there's concerns about their labor practices, uh, their ties to China, um, you know, and other issues. So, it's interesting, uh, and it will be interesting to see how investors think about this one. Um, there really hasn't been an apples-to-apples comparison recently. And distinguish for us the driving force behind Asheen wanting to go public and, for example, a Reddit. It feels as though, from a Reddit perspective, this is a liquidity event that really drives the desire to go public. I think that's right. Reddit was founded in 2005. This is an 18-year-old company. You'll get Sheen. They're 11 years old, so you know they're not young either. And when you look at a global level, there are over 1,200 of these unicorn companies uh, valued at over 3.8 trillion in aggregate. So that's a lot of value that has been tied up in the private markets. And while platforms like EquityZen enable some investors to access this market and some shareholders to achieve liquidity, there really isn't a wide-scale liquidity event until there is an IPO. So I think a lot of these companies are feeling intense pressure from their early investors, from their early employees to get some liquidity. And uh, you know, venture capitalists really aren't looking to pump more money into these late-stage companies. So the IPO is really, um, you know, the next step. The reported target valuation for Reddit is $15 billion. The last active user number that I reported, which was like months ago, is between 50 and 60 million daily active users, which in the grand scheme of things doesn't seem like that many. Um, you talked about the motivation being employee liquidity, but what on the about the demand side of the equation? Is anyone actually interested in a publicly traded Reddit? Reddit's an interesting one to watch because they are so entwined in the whole retail investor market. They really were in the news a lot at the time of the meme stock uh, era. Their subreddit, Wall Street Bets, really drove a lot of that retail momentum. Um, so there's certainly a tie there. And I think there are some super fan and users who will be eagerly watching and um, looking to participate in this IPO. Um, so while they are maybe one of the smaller social platforms, 
really do have a loyal user base. And another thing to note is that they are growing from a profitability perspective. Um, it's reported that their advertising revenue grew 31% in 2022. This has historically been a really small part of their business. Um, so an opportunity for them um, to grow and uh, potentially achieve profitability. Um, mm. it, it'll be interesting to see if they are profitable at the time of considering an IPO because that seems to be a table stake for any company considering now. It's interesting that in many ways an IPO is often a marketing event as well, getting your name out there to a retail community. And one particular interview we had last week amid the whole furor and debacle around the ousting then return of Sam Altman to OpenAI was one very key VC saying, well, this wouldn't eventually be a bad time to actually IPO OpenAI. Just take a listen for us, Brianne. Yeah, I actually think that they should, once they get this all sorted out, immediately file to go public. I think that the demand and the outpouring and interest that you've seen and the support for Sam is just absolutely unprecedented in a tech company. It's almost like an unintended pre-IPO roadshow to show the overwhelming demand. Of Lux Capital, that was Josh Wolf. Brianne, you of course make a market in OpenAI. What would you say to the level of demand there is for a company like that amid the turmoil? When we look at demand amongst our investors in the private markets, AI and machine learning companies are by far the most in-demand companies um, on EquitySense platform. So not surprising given just the boom in this space, uh, but there was certainly a lot of investor interest for AI and AI adjacent companies. So an interesting take on that one. Um, and I'm interested to see kind of if, if that story develops and what comes from that, uh, because there certainly is a lot of demand. And when you look at the AI market more broadly, a lot of these companies are still quite young, so less likely to be IPO candidates. Um, but that doesn't mean that there couldn't be one that hits the market. And OpenAI certainly has the brand name. Brianne, just 30 seconds. Do you expect an active 1Q 2024, another uh, window to happen? I do. I do think things will pick up in Q1 of next year. From a macroeconomic perspective, we have really good indicators of growth, strong GDP, uh, inflation is cooling. So from, you know, when you look at that, now is an opportune time to enter the market. The IPOs we've seen haven't done great, um, but I don't think that should be a deterrent for more of these companies next year, uh, especially those who really have both the liquidity and the investor access need to enter the markets. Equity Zens, Hello Market Insights, Brianne Lynch, it's been brilliant talking to you. So an upcoming developers conference has been cancelled after seeming to list fake female speakers on the event's roster, prompting executives from Microsoft and other firms to back out of the Devternity conference. My tickets are actually selling for up to $870 a piece. Joining us now, one of the people reporting this out, Bloomberg's Ella Saron. And, I mean, totally extraordinary. The event's organiser confirming it's been cancelled. What was it? He was auto-generating women in particular as speakers? That's the story of what he said happened. Uh, so this conference, Devternity, uh, had a number of speakers listed. And then a newsletter writer uh, came out on, on X saying that you know, actually the, this one profile has been AI-generated. Another one seems very suspicious. And from there, uh, participants started dropping out. They just said it was very suspicious. The uh, gentleman who uh, organized the conference since said that the, one of the uh, 
accounts had, or one of the profiles had been auto-generated, it had been a mistake, he has since removed it, uh, but then there was a far more pervasive issue of uh, confirmed speakers who had since dropped out, their profiles were still up on the screen, um, including two women who had shifted for various reasons. Um, and so there was a lot of concern that there was a plot to make the account look, or to make the conference look more diverse than it really was. So the organizer, Eduard Sizovs, has confirmed that DevTernity's been canceled. It's not happening. But let's go back to his rationale. He said this was not about giving the appearance of a more diverse conference than was actually the case. It was about a mistake, essentially, that he had made. Uh, yes, that's exactly what he said what happened. But one of the bigger pervasive issues is that we know that tech is still chronically underrepresented when it comes to female developers. Uh, one report said that the tech industry is still less than 30% female. And so there has been this really big push to make sure that these uh, conferences, that everything is really representative, that they have a really good mix. Some of these speakers who were confirmed um, as allies have even said, I'm not going to appear at a conference unless there's a really decent representative mix. Um, and so when they pulled out, they said that they had been duped and that their uh, clauses had, you know, it didn't pass muster for their clauses. Okay, Bloomberg's Ella Seren, thank you so much for that reporting. Now coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, we're going to talk about the state of the consumer. As Amazon says Black Friday and Cyber Monday shopping broke records this year. More on that next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success.
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. The consumers had a remarkable resilience, but I do think the momentum will start to slow. And I mean, evidence of that is that we are seeing more usage of credit cards to fund these transactions. Credit card balances are at all-time highs. Um, your colleague was just speaking about the fact that buy now, pay later is factoring into this as well. We're seeing delinquencies across the consumer spectrum, um, across the full income spectrum, start to increase from very low levels, but increase nonetheless. A mega Black Friday and Cyber Monday, but Lisa Hornby of Schroeder's earlier on the state of consumer, some concerns and a focus after what was a strong weekend for e-commerce sales. Travel Tuesday is now underway. And we'll go up to the skies with Tom White of DA Davidson. So the hot categories for spend over the weekend were like consumer electronics and Hot Wheels, totally rad. Do you expect (laughs) to see the same spend at elevated levels, gains from last year on travel, be it flights, be it uh, accommodations? Yeah, first off, thanks for having me. Yeah, look, we're fe- you know we're, we're monitoring the consumer closely, but so far it looks quite good. It looks like underlying travel demand is still holding up quite well based on a number of the data points that we track. Uh, certainly the big public OTAs, online travel agencies that we cover, all had pretty encouraging things to say about how uh, kind of fourth quarter and early 2024 travel was shaping up. But even some of the third-party data, like, for example, the TSA checkpoint data, uh, quarter to date so far in the fourth quarter, we're up about 10% on a year-over-year basis. The third quarter was up about 11%, so pretty kind of stable growth trends there. Uh, a handful of other surveys from companies like Deloitte all point to, um, you know, people looking to travel more, you know, this Thanksgiving through the mid-January across all age groups, all demographics, really. So, so far, so good. But, um, you know, obviously, um, uh, I think interest rates and the broader macro are uh, something to keep an eye on. Well, that, that's a good point. So you heard that that bite around the role that credit cards are playing with the consumer, buy now, pay later, is how consumers spend on travel a concern, kind of for a long-term outlook on that market? Look, certainly uh, for a long-term outlook. I mean, in the short-term outlook, you know, if, if people are stretching themselves a little bit because they still feel the lingering effects of being cooped up during COVID and they want to prioritize experiences and travel, um, you know, that, that'll obviously be a, a positive for the online travel agencies that we cover. Uh, longer term, though, we need a, a generally healthy consumer uh, who's uh, got discretionary income to spend. So uh, I think an easing of rates or at least a stability in rates and, um, you know, kind of maybe going into next year would you know be a further kind of positive catalyst for, for travel spending. Okay, Tom White of DA Davidson with the travel outlook on this Travel Tuesday. Thank you. Caroline, what have you got on the ground? Well, we're going to go to the consumer a little bit more, but look, the non-discretionary type, we want to be talking a little bit more about the grocery world. After, in fact, Amazon just reported for Black Friday and Cyber Monday, well, all those Hot Wheels that you were just talking about, it broke records this year. Customers around the world purchasing over one billion items. But let's go into the grocery side of the equation. Meredith Bunch is with us, Amazon's director of worldwide grocery stores. And were the consumers showing up in your part of the business as well, Meredith? Yes, they were. As you mentioned, Amazon had record Black Friday sales and we had great success in the grocery space as well. Lots of customers shopping online and in-store across Whole Foods and Amazon Fresh. 
especially taking advantage of our great deal that we had on turkey at just 49 cents a pound, which was an amazing deal. So, yes, a great uh, holiday all around. What's interesting, of course, because you do have from Whole Foods a more perhaps luxurious expenditure that you might do at a grocery department rather than you go to Fresh and Amazon Essentials, basically tickle the boxes on a price perspective. And I'm interested as to whether or not you're managing to have the one shopping cart that much a little bit more for people who want to splash out at Whole Foods, but also get their basics from, say, Fresh, for example. Yes, absolutely. We know that customers have different needs and our goal is to meet those needs, uh, whether it's through Whole Foods Market or through Amazon Fresh. We also have Amazon Go and each one of those banners provides our customers with a different set of groceries, whether they want to buy their sustainable seafood from Whole Foods Market and then they want to get their center store Pringles or Coca-Cola or just really basic cooking goods at Amazon Fresh and then they want to get some fresh food to go from Amazon Go. We really see our holistic uh, grocery offering as a way to solve our customers' needs because we know that they're shopping across four to five different retailers today. Can I? And so we think, well, what sorry, if we man. can? Yeah, go ahead. Can, can I get it in one delivery yet? Um, not yet, but we are working on that because we have everything that the customer wants. We've got the tens of thousands of shelf-stable items on Amazon.com, the Whole Foods Market, the Amazon Fresh, the Amazon Go. And we want to make it as easy as possible for customers to get all of that in one shopping cart and one grocery delivery. And that is what we are working towards because simplifying that relationship where they can get everything from one singular uh, relationship with Amazon is really how we think we can solve for customers in the grocery space. And you've been and if you revamping look at doing, stores, of course, as well, Meredith. You've yes. been bringing in yes, we are. But what, donuts and coffee, but also some of the more technology-savvy ways of perhaps just walking out, for example. But how is that squaring with actually the expansion of bricks and mortar? Are you still rolling out more stores? I think it was about 100 of Whole Foods that you wanted over the next few years. Yes, we are going to continue to open our Whole Foods Market stores and we'll do so selectively with Amazon Fresh when we see the results that we like. And as you mentioned, we have relaunched several Amazon Fresh stores in the Chicago area and in the Los Angeles area. In those stores, we've added thousands of new products. We've lowered prices across thousands of products. We've added new checkout options so customers can use Just Walk Out. They can use our Dash Cart. They can use Self Checkout, really giving them the power to choose how they want to check out. As you also mentioned, we've got Krispy Kreme integrated in the stores with coffee and donuts, which makes everybody's shopping trip a lot more delightful. Um, and Prime customers can also get an additional 10% off of those stores. And we're really happy with the results that we're seeing. And we're going to continue to iterate and continue to invent on behalf of the customer and look for those results that tell us where where we want to be. What was interesting with the whole refresh, refocus that was really announced in August was those prime account holders and non-prime account holders. You started to say, look, you, you can buy with us even if you don't have a prime subscription. How is that going? How many numbers of people are using your groceries when they're not having a prime subscription? Yeah, we were really excited uh, just a few weeks ago to launch grocery delivery for customers without a Prime membership from Amazon Fresh. Previously, customers needed to be a Prime member in order to access our grocery delivery. And we really wanted to democratize our affordable, fast, reliable delivery for everybody, whether you're a Prime member or not. That being said, being a Prime member still gives you an additional 10% off thousands of items when you shop in-store, as well as lower delivery fees for shopping online. We're really pleased to see the number of customers that are not Prime members shopping our grocery delivery service. Yeah. And as we continue to roll out, we hope that'll continue to grow.
Meredith Bunch, thank you so much for giving us the insight on Amazon and all the world's of groceries. Ed, what have we got coming up? Yep, a big focus on China tech. President Xi Jinping visiting Shanghai today. A lot of stories in the news flow. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. There was a lot of news out of China overnight, technology stories that impacted markets. One of the shares we're looking at is the Hong Kong listed shares of SenseTime, a Chinese AI company. We're going to bring you the full details later in the show, but they're subject to a short sellers report, which did see the shares in Hong Kong close down almost 5%. The other big name, and this has continued into the US session, is the ADRs or the US listed shares of Pinduoduo, the owner of Timu. We're talking about online retail. Um, um, absolutely smashing expectations in its earnings in the quarter just gone, more than doubling revenue year on year, coming in 25% ahead of consensus, but also really beating on net income. The story is Timu really taking shoppers and market share from the likes of, of Sheen, which we've talked about is, is standing by for a US listing at the start of next year, but also Amazon, some evidence that they're taking shoppers from Amazon in other markets as well. And those US ADRs now up almost 19%, 18.5% in the session. Karen. Pinto Duo. 
a Shanghai-based company. Let's talk about that a little bit more, Ed, because Chinese President Xi Jinping is indeed visiting Shanghai for what is like the first time since COVID lockdown, making stops at the Shanghai Futures Exchange and several tech giants operating in the mega city to try and boost waning private sector sentiment. That's all according to local media. Joining us now is an expert, Ben Harburg. He's managing partner at MSA Capital, who actually, well, you just had words with Xi Jinping when he was at APEC in San Francisco, where it is right now. And what is your message to him at the moment? And what is his message at this moment by going to Shanghai? Well, he's trying to stretch his hands out. Shanghai was probably one of the most damaged major cities by uh, by the draconian zero COVID lockdowns. We didn't face the same type of um, shutdown in Beijing, and, and Shanghai was kind of seen as a poster child for one that had kind of fallen afoul of, let's say, central government regulations around managing zero COVID, and therefore was subjected to the most strict lockdowns. And the, the PTSD that that left, both for its residents as well as global investors, will not soon be forgotten. The PDSD that many an investor has is then the regulatory crackdown that Xi Jinping had on the tech investment area more broadly. How do you think that investors are seeing a post-COVID and post-regulatory enforcement world for China? Well, the you know the regulators are doing everything they can to try to uh, assuage those fears that there will be an ongoing interference in the markets. And when I had the chance to whisper a few thoughts to, to President Xi last week, I said, please get your hand out of the markets and get a better PR team, because you need people that can explain why you're doing what you're doing and explain well ahead of the time that it takes place so that people don't fear that there's these unexpected twists and turns and unpredictability that would cause them to flee the market. Um, and it's that volatility with the you know strong returns on the U.S. side that would cause a lot of global investors to say, why is China worth the risk if I could go put, pop my money in the U.S. at these kind of returns? Shanghai and some of its, its high-tech parks are the site of AI development. They're the site of chip design firms and actually, to some extent, gaming. 24 hours ago, we posed this question about the regulatory crackdown on gaming and where we stand now. Just have a listen to this. I think that most of the regulatory changes are behind us now and that people have some stronger footing to move forward. There's still huge amounts of money to be made in the Chinese games market. Ben, that was Lisa Cosmas Hansen, uh, partner at Nico Partners, president of Nico Partners. She was talking in the context of gaming, but broadly across the technology sector. Is she now carrying out a, a supportive policy or uh, is still having some heavy regulatory overtang on those sectors, many of which based in Shanghai. I think that regulatory intervention is over. Uh, and again, it, it squares with the type of tone that he took during his speeches at APEC, particularly the one that we were attending on Wednesday night, where he was, you know, really olive branch out. The state of the Chinese economy is dire. The last thing they need is further shocks and further interventions in, in the technology giants that are seen as bellwethers. Um, and so I don't expect further interventions. That doesn't mean that the world will believe that. We've got to show that through proof. And again, that's why they really got to come out clearly and state that just having photo ops at SenseTime or Pinduoduo or SMIC won't do it. Uh, they've got to make that clear to investors and then show it over the coming year before a lot of that trust can be rebuilt. From a pure technology and competence perspective, are you seeing evidence that China is standing on its own two feet? Certainly. Uh, I mean, the, the, the pace at which China's been able to develop its own chips is 
um, beats any kind of global precedent. Um, you know, China's numbers in terms of publications in uh, magazines, uh, in, in Nature magazines, or you know, other kind of scientific um, sources is, is off the charts. Numbers of patents being filed. Um, you know, the ability of, of of Huawei to now obviously issue its own operating system with Harmony. Um, we are truly now witnessing what I think a lot of us. Um, you know, poo-pooed maybe early on, which was kind of the, the, the reality of a true decoupling. And we are finding ourselves in a balkanized world where there will be a set of Chinese hardware operating systems, app stores, uh, and customer bases, and then those um, balkanized from, from those of Western producers. How balkanized will the investor base eventually be, Ben? This is what you deal in day to day, accessing pools of liquidity from the West to be going into China. And at this time, we're looking at Xi'an, which, of course, you know, would say it's not a Chinese company, but it once was. And ultimately, a lot of its stock comes from there. But it's now based in Singapore. But they're going to be tapping an American investor once again. How do you see the liquidity being brought to bear for Chinese investments? It's been tough this year. I think a lot of that is, again, down to performance. So as you know, we have for the first negative FDI uh, since 1998 in China. We had 75% of the capital that flowed into China this year, and the public markets flow out, about $25 billion. Uh, but I think, again, a lot of that is is returns-driven. The capital that is not returns-influenced is, is being scared away for, let's say, non-fundamental reasons. And that, I think, pertains more to geopolitics. And, and those investors are looking for opportunities to invest in China still. They believe it fundamentally is a growth opportunity, but they want to do so in a way that helps them navigate these geopolitical uncertainties. So they want to know that the companies they're investing in aren't going to aid and abet the PLA. They're not going to necessarily compromise American values. Um, and so I think companies that, that can prove that ilk are going to continue to see um, and attract capital if they can um, return the, the type of profile that's required to kind of compete with those U.S. Uh, opportunity costs. Um, and so I, I think that capital will return, but that takes the stability. Um, and those companies that are not on those, that they're falling afoul of that, the likes of SenseTime or for, for Paradigm or those that, that are kind of have connectivity to uh, CCP entities or the PLA, I think they will attract a lot less capital because of the geopolitical concerns going forward. Ben, we were just showing the performance of the NASDAQ Golden Dragon Index year today. I think it's trailing the NASDAQ 100 and, and S&P 500. Either way, what do you see as being the 2024 story for China Tech? We have to be ever ever bullish, and, and I really am. I mean, I, I, I'm talking my own my own personal book in terms of what I put my money into. The, the numbers are irrationally discounted. That, that Alibaba is trading at or near its uh, IPO um, valuation, yet with, with 10 times increase in revenue, makes no logical sense. Um, and again, if we can sustain the growth, and I think China will hit its 5% target this year. Uh, the IMF even raised that target to above five. Um, heading into the tail end of this year. Uh, I think that China has the tools to deploy. The fundamentals are sound in the economy. The real estate picture is overblown in terms of the impact it will have on the true economic drivers in the economy. It is not a Lehman moment. Um, and, and therefore, uh, you know, we are actually piling into Chinese equities and taking them out of the American ones that we think are probably fully priced at this point, just can't manage to sustain this type of upside um, that we've experienced throughout this year. So I'm, 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 a, I'm a China bull heading into next year, even if it's a, a, a more modest bull than it would have been in that kind of growth spurt from 2017 to 2021.
All right, China Bull Light. We'll come back to you at some point in 2024 and check in. Ben Harburg, managing partner of MSA Capital. Thank you so much. I want to go back to that story that I was talking about, the markets. Context, Sense Time Group shares plummeted. They're most since April after short seller Grizzly Research released a report citing documents and insiders which accused the Chinese AI company of inflating its revenues. The stock tumbled as much as 9.7% before closing down about 5% lower in Hong Kong. In a filing to the exchange, SenseTime said the report is, quote, without merit and contains unfounded allegations. Okay, it's time for Talking Tech. And first up in the news, a Toronto-based hedge fund building a stake in Twilio is reportedly pushing for a sale. Reports from the information say Anson Funds sent a letter to the software company's board of directors urging Twilio to either sell or divest its data and applications business. Anson's stake in Twilio is said to be worth about 50 million US dollars. And in an effort to grow its AI footprint, Dell has agreed to provide computing hardware to artificial intelligence startup Imbue. The $150 million deal will supply Imbue with Dell servers in order to process vast amounts of data. Imbue is one of the handful of AI startups building its models from scratch. Plus, Adobe's $20 billion purchase of design software maker Figma is at risk of being blocked by the UK's Competition and Markets Authority. The agency says the deal could threaten competition in product design software and reduce the possibility of new products in that market. These notes are pretty in line with the EU's regulator, which sent Adobe a list of objections earlier this month. Caroline. Well, let's stay in the region for a moment, Ed, because European biotech startup Cradle is on the path to expanding its use of generative AI in the name of science. Today, Cradle is announcing $24 million in a Series A funding led by Index Ventures, taking the total raise to $33 million. For more on how these funds are going to be used, we're pleased to welcome the CEO, Steph Van Grieken. And Steph, welcome. Using generative AI, using machine learning, you're helping biologists, what, basically design more efficiently, effectively, less money. How do you do this? stuff. Yeah, so we are using generative AI to help scientist teams to engineer proteins um, that will basically help them to get to the types of bio-based products that they want to bring into the market uh, a lot faster. Um, it's a little bit akin to how large language models are being used in natural language, but then for biological sequences, so DNA. You've got Johnson & Johnson Innovation, Novozymes, Twist by Science as some of your companies you've already onboarded. The money you use now, how does that accelerate onboarding more? What is it? Are you investing in talent, in AI labs, where you are in the Netherlands or Switzerland? Yeah, definitely. So we're scaling our go-to-market uh, with this money as well as our own in-house data collection. Um, I think what's a little bit different in biological research is that a lot of the data that you need in order to train these machine learning models, you can't just find on the internet because people are not publishing their IP and their experimental results. And so we're building out some of our in-house lab capabilities. And obviously, we will continue to train large language models and, and expand our uh, ML research team. Steph, there's a large body of work on the use of, of generative AI tools in, in proteins, in uh, drug discovery. The whole point is largely to expedite what is a highly regulated and slow process. Where you are in Europe, is there regulatory support for if your tech works, you can actually go out and make an impact in the real world? 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, luckily for us, a lot of the products that people are building today are already being regulated. So if you want to bring a drug to market, uh, you, know, you already have to go to the FDA or uh, the European Drug Authority, and same for food products that you might bring into the market. Um, where we really show up is in sort of the research and development stages for these types of products. So if you're in pharmaceuticals, it can easily take four years before you go into a clinical trial and actually test whether your drugs are efficacy safe and, 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 and useful for people. Um, and we really cut that initial part of, of drug discovery in half. Very similarly, a lot of people are now using bio-based products um, uh, and, and selling them to people. So for example, you might have wondered at some point, why do my detergents keep working at lower temperatures? That's because we're increasingly using enzymes like biologicals in uh, the formulations. And also, these types of products are really expensive to bring to market and, and you know tens of millions of dollars worth of R&D. Really, the promise of generative AI in this space is to significantly reduce the amount of time required to do the R&D for these types of projects, therefore allowing our customers to bring those types of products to market a lot faster. Steph, just for, for clarity's sake, what is it that, that Cradle has that's uniquely yours? Is it the underlying large language model that you, you've written, trained, and are now using yourselves? Yeah, it's basically two things. One is indeed those large language models that help uh, get our customers to outcomes much faster. I think secondly is we've collected a lot of proprietary data inside of our laboratory that we use to train these models that make it really easy and, and uh, sort of usable for, for a lot of our customers. And I think finally, uh, you know, software in, in uh, research and development for these types of products is still very early. We build very intuitive web-based software that scientists and experimentalists can use in the lab. I'm sure the VCs who've backed this latest round love what you're doing now, but they also love the background of the team and you, Steph, of course. Like you were part of product leadership over at Google AI, at machine intelligence. What do you make of the current tearing apart almost of itself slightly of the way in which we should be developing generative AI in particular? The race or the slowdown? Where do you come out on that, having worked at a, at a force such as Google? Yeah, I mean, I think there's still an acceleration happening. Uh, I personally am most excited in some of the application domains that are related to science. So, like, can we get people to learn, you know, learn a lot more about something that they're researching a lot faster in, you know, things like electric engineering and things like mechanical engineering in places like biology? I think there's an incredible amount of untapped applications for the, for, for generative AI. Um, obviously, you know, the, the races are off for some of the chatbots, uh, and, and I wish, you know, my former employer as well as OpenAI, uh, a lot of luck. I think we're just at the beginning, to be honest. Uh, Steph, you and your, your founding uh, members of the company are in Europe, but your origins are here in the Bay Area, where I am. Kind of what is the, the benefit of, of launching and growing a company in Europe versus traditional Silicon Valley? Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's some pros and cons. Uh, I think on the pro side, the access to really high quality talent for us is really amazing here. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want to be a founder fighting for ML researchers in the Bay Area right now because lots of people are trying to hire. And I think there's a lot of talent here that doesn't want to move to the US uh, that would want to work for a company like Cradle. Uh, I think secondly, and that is for us more specifically, uh, you know, a very large contingent of companies that are in biopharma and biotechnology are based out of Europe. You know, I, I myself am in Zurich in Switzerland right now, and so some of the large companies like Novartis, Roche, they're all based out of Europe. All right, our thanks to Stefan Greiken, CEO of Cradle.
Okay, Tesla's Cybertruck is almost here, but it's not without its challenges. Even as the company is about to start deliveries on Thursday, a splashy event, Elon Musk's already lamenting that Tesla's dug its own grave with it. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Dana Hall, who's been writing about this on Bloomberg.com. I guess the idea is that technologically, from an engineering perspective, from a battery perspective, this is a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have focused on the Cybertruck and the steel, which is its own challenge. But Musk has warned repeatedly that this truck has a lot of bells and whistles. There's a lot of new technology in it. Uh, it's, so it's going to be difficult to manufacture in high volumes for that reason. And he's you know, very clearly stated on the last earnings call that they're not going to reach high volume for quite a while. Bells and whistles was exactly what they did with the X and... Well, that didn't go so well from a sales perspective. So I'm interested why he's going back for more in this way. Why do this? Yeah, I mean, that's what really struck me as I listened to him talk about the Cybertruck. He kept saying these phrases, and I was like, oh, my God, this sounds like the Model X all over again, which, you know, they, they eventually lamented and, and sort of acknowledged that the Model X suffered from hubris. And I just sort of fear that we're about to see this all over again. I mean, it's new battery architecture. It is, you know, rear wheel stealing. It's a new steering wheel. It's the steel. Right. It's a sound system. I mean, and we, and we don't even really have real specs yet. So I, th I think that there's probably a lot of great surprises that will delight consumers when they do the big reveal on Thursday. But manufacturing and high volume, it's just going to be rocky. And, and Tesla itself has basically said this. I remember being in Hawthorne 2019 and Cybertruck rolls on stage and you're like, no way, no way. And then Franz from Valhausen throws the ball, it smashes. And yet here we are, Dana, behind schedule, but an actual product. Yeah, and I think the big question will be, so who, how many how many do they hand over on Thursday? My understanding is that it's supposed to be roughly 10. Are they to employees, to bona fide consumers, to sort of trusted consumers and influencers? And then when we get the uh, sales, you know, quarterly sales and delivery figures in January, like how many Cybertrucks are on that list? Uh, so, you know, I think they've learned lessons, obviously, but they, they seem like they are repeating some mistakes that they made with the X in terms of just, you know, really packing this vehicle with a lot of new technology. Yeah. Another part of Elon Inc. I'm loving the poster behind you for the all-important podcast you're part of at the moment as well. Dana Hull, we thank you so much for that look ahead for Thursday. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. And you don't want to miss the recap of our podcast. So find it on the terminal. You can go online. You can go on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, wherever you get your consumption of podcasts. From New York, from San Francisco, and later from Las Vegas, with Anne Salipsky, this is Bloomberg Technology. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.